0: Section 11 of Lucretia Borgia by Ferdinand Gregorovius. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Emily Maynard. Book 1, Chapter 11, The Invasion of Italy, The Profligate World. Early in September 1494, Charles the Eighth marched into Piedmont, and the affairs of all Italy suffered an immediate change. The Pope and his allies Alfonso and Piero de' Medici found themselves almost defenseless in a short time as early as november seventeenth the king entered florence alexander was anxious to meet him with his own and the neapolitan troops at viterbo where cardinal farnese was legate but the french overran the patrimonium without hindrance and even the pope's mistress her sister girolima and madonna adriana who were alexander's quote, heart and eyes fell into the hands of a body of french scouts The Mantuan agent, Brognolo, informed his master of this event in a despatch dated November 29, 1494. A calamity has happened which is also a great insult to the Pope. Day before yesterday, Madonna Hadriana and Madonna Giulia and her sister set out from their castle of Capodimonte to go to their brother, the Cardinal, in Viterbo. And when about a mile from that place, they met a troop of French cavalry, by whom they were taken prisoners, and led to Montefiascone together with their suite of twenty-five or thirty persons. The French captain who made this precious capture was Monseigneur d'Allegre, perhaps the same Ivo who subsequently entered the service of Caesar. when he learned who the beautiful women were he placed their ransom at three thousand ducats and in a letter informed king charles whom he had captured but the latter refused to see them madonna Giulia wrote to rome saying they were well treated and asking that their ransom be sent the knowledge of this catastrophe caused alexander the greatest dismay he immediately despatched a chamberlain to Marino where Cardinal Ascania was to be found in the headquarters of the Colonna, and who, on his urgent request, had returned November 2nd, and had had an interview with King Charles. He complained to the Cardinal of the indignity which had been put upon him, and asked his cooperation to secure the release of the prisoners. He also wrote to Galeazzo of San Severino, who was accompanying the King to Siena, and who, wishing to please the Pope, urged Charles the Eighth to release the ladies accompanied by an escort of four hundred of the french they were led to the gates of rome where they were received december first by juan Maradas, the pope's chamberlain this romantic adventure caused a sensation throughout all italy the people instead of sympathizing with the pope ridiculed him mercilessly a letter from Trotti, the Ferrarese ambassador at the court of Milan, to Duke Ercole, quotes the words which Ludovico il Moro, the usurper of the throne of his nephew, whom he had poisoned, uttered on this occasion concerning the Pope. Quote, He, Ludovico, gravely reproved Monsignor Ascanio and Cardinal San Severino for surrendering Madonna Giulia, Madonna Adriana, and Hieronima to His Holiness for since these ladies were the heart and eyes of the pope they would have been the best whip for compelling him to do everything which was wanted of him for he could not live without them the french who captured them received only three thousand ducats as ransom although the pope would gladly have paid fifty thousand or more simply to have them back again the same duke received news from rome and also from angelo in florence that when the ladies entered his holiness went to meet them arrayed in a black doublet bordered with gold brocade with a beautiful belt in the spanish fashion and with sword and dagger he wore spanish boots and a velvet biretta, all very gallant the duke asked me laughing what i thought of it and i told him that were i the duke of milan like him i would endeavour with the aid of the king of france and in every other way and on the pretext of establishing peace to entrap his holiness and with fair words such as he himself was in the habit of using to take him in the cardinal's prisoners which would be very easy he who has the servant as we say at home has also the wagon and the oxen and I reminded him of the verse of Catullus, "Tu quoque facsimile ars deluditer arte." Ludovico, the worthy contemporary of the Borges, once an intimate friend of Alexander the Sixth, hated the Pope when he turned his face away from him in France, and he was especially embittered by the treacherous capture of his brother Ascanio. December twenty-eighth, the same ambassador wrote to Ercole. Quote, the duke ludovico told me that he was hourly expecting the arrival of messer Bartolomeo da calco with a courier bringing the news that the pope was taken and beheaded i leave it to the reader to decide whether ludovico simply owing to his hatred of the pope was slandering him and indulging in extravagances concerning him when he had this conversation with trotti and also when he publicly stated to his senate that quote, the pope had allowed three women to come to him one of them being a nun of Valencia, the other Castilian, the third a very beautiful girl from Venice, fifteen or sixteen years of age. Here in Milan, continued Trotti in his despatch, the same scandalous things are related of the Pope, as are told in Ferrara of the Torta. Elsewhere we may read how Charles VIII, victorious without the trouble of winning battles, penetrated as far as Rome and Naples his march through italy is the most humiliating of all the invasions which the peninsula suffered but it shows that when states and peoples are ready for destruction the strength of a weak-headed boy is sufficient to bring about their ruin the pope outwitted the french monarch who instead of having him deposed by a council fell on his knees before him acknowledged him to be christ's vicar and concluded a treaty with him after this he set out for naples which shortly fell into his hands Italy rose, a league against Charles Eighth was formed, and he was compelled to return. Alexander fled before him, first in the direction of Orvieto, and then towards Perugia. While there he summoned Giovanni Sforza, who arrived with his wife, June 16, 1495, remained four days, and went back to Pesaro. The King of France succeeded in breaking his way through the league's army at the Battle of the Taro, and thus honorably escaped death or capture having returned to rome alexander established himself still more firmly in the holy chair about which he gathered his ambitious bastards while the borgias pushed themselves forward all the more audaciously because the confusion occasioned in the affairs of italy by the invasion of charles the eighth made it all the easier for them to carry out their intentions lucretia remained a little longer in pesaro with her husband whom venice had engaged in the interests of the league Giovanni Sforza, however, does not appear to have been present either at the Battle of the Taro or at the Siege of Novara. When peace was declared in October 1495 between France and the Duke of Milan, whereby the war came to an end in northern Italy, Sforza was able to take his wife back to Rome. Marino Sanuto speaks of her as having been in that city at the end of October, and Bouchard gives us a picture of Lucretia at the Christmas festivities while in the service of the league sforza commanded three hundred foot soldiers and one hundred heavy horse with these troops he set out for naples in the spring of the following year when the united forces lent the young king ferrante the second great assistance in the conflicts with the french troops under montpensier even the captain-general of venice the marchese of Mantua, was there and he entered rome march twenty sixth fourteen ninety six sforza with his mercenaries arrived in rome april fifteenth only to leave the city again April 28th. His wife remained behind. May 4th he reached Fundi. Alexander's two sons, Don Giovanni and John Giuffre, were still away from Rome. One, the Duke of Gandia, was also in the pay of Venice and was expected from Spain to take command of 400 men which his lieutenant, Alvazio Bachetto had enlisted for him. The other, Don Giuffre, had, as we have seen, gone to Naples in 1494, where he had married Donna Sancha and had been made Prince of Squilace. As a member of the House of Aragon, he shared the dangers of the declining dynasty in the hope of inducing the Pope not to abandon it he accompanied king ferrante on his flight and also followed his standard when after the retreat of charles the eighth he with the help of spain venice and the pope again secured possession of his kingdom entering naples in the summer of fourteen ninety five not until the following year did don giuffre and his wife come to rome in royal state they entered the eternal city may twentieth fourteen ninety six The ambassadors, cardinals, officers of the city, and numerous nobles went to meet them at the Lateran Gate. Lucretia also was there with her suite. The young couple were escorted to the Vatican. The Pope, on his throne, surrounded by eleven cardinals, received his son and daughter-in-law. On his right hand he had Lucretia and on his left Sancha, sitting on cushions. It was wits untied, and the two princesses and their suites boldly occupied the priest's benches in St. Peter's and according to Bouchard, the populace was greatly shocked. Three months later, August 10th, 1496, Alexander's eldest son, Don Giovanni, Duke of Gandia, entered Rome, where he remained, his father having determined to make him a great prince. It is not related whether he brought his wife, Donna Maria, with him. For the first time, Alexander had all his children about him, and in the borgo of the Vatican there were no less than three Nepot courts. Giovanni resided in the Vatican, Lucretia in the palace of Santa Maria in Portico, Giuffre in the house of the Cardinal of Aleria near the bridge of Santangelo, and Caesar in the same borgo. They were all pleasure-loving upstarts who were consumed with a desire for honors and power. All were young and beautiful, except Lucretia all were vicious, graceful, seductive scoundrels, and as such among the most charming and attractive figures in the society of old Rome. For only the narrowest observer— blind to everything but their infamous deeds can paint the Borges simply as savage and cruel brutes tiger cubs by nature they were privileged malefactors like many other princes and potentates of that age they mercilessly availed themselves of poison and poignard removing every obstacle to their ambition and smiled when the object was attained if we could see the life which these unrestrained bastards led in the vatican where their father conscious now of his security and greatness was enthroned we should indeed behold strange things it was a singular drama which was being enacted in the domain of saint peter where two young and beautiful women held a dazzling court which was always animated by swarms of spanish and italian lords and ladies and the elegant world of rome nobles and monsignori crowded around to pay homage to these women one of whom lucretia was just sixteen and the other Sancha, a little more than seventeen years of age we may imagine what love intrigues took place in the palace of these young women and how jealousy and ambition there carried on their intricate game for no one will believe that these princesses full of the passion and exuberance of youth led the life of nuns or saints in the shadows of st peter's their palace resounded with music and the dance and the noise of revels and of masquerades the populace saw these women accompanied by splendid cavalcades riding through the streets of rome to the vatican they knew that the pope was in daily intercourse with them visiting them in person and taking part in their festivities and also receiving them now privately and now with ceremonious pomp as befitted princesses of his house alexander himself much as he was addicted to the pleasures of the senses cared nothing for elaborate banquets concerning the pope the Ferrarese ambassador wrote to his master in fourteen ninety five as follows he partakes of but a single dish though this must be a rich one it is consequently a bore to dine with him ascanio and others especially cardinal monreale who formerly were his holiness's table companions and valenza too broke off this companionship because his parsimony displeased them and avoided it whenever and however they could the doings in the vatican furnished ground for endless gossip which had long been current in rome it was related in venice in october fourteen ninety six that the duke of gandia had brought a spanish woman to his father with whom he lived and an account was given of a crime which is almost incredible although it was related by the venetian ambassador and other persons it was not long before donna Sancha caused herself to be freely gossiped about she was beautiful and thoughtless she appreciated her position as the daughter of a king from the most vicious of the courts she was transplanted into the depravity of rome as the wife of an immature boy it was said that her brothers-in-law gandia and caesar quarrelled over her and possessed her in turn and that young nobles and cardinals like hippolito d'este could boast of having enjoyed her favours savonarola may have had these nepot courts in mind when from the pulpit of san marco in florence he declaimed in burning words against the roman sodom even if the voice of the great preacher whose words were filling all italy did not reach lucretia's ears from her own experience she must have known how profligate was the world in which she lived about her she saw vice shamelessly displayed or cloaked in sacerdotal robes She was conscious of the ambition and the avarice which hesitated at no crime. She beheld a religion more pagan than paganism itself, and a church service in which the sacred actors, with whose conduct behind the scenes she was perfectly familiar, were the priests, the cardinals, her brother Caesar, and her own father. All this Lucretia beheld, but they are wrong who believe that she or others like her saw and regarded it as we do now, or as a few pure-minded persons of that age did, for familiarity always dulls the average person's perception of the truth in that age the conceptions of religion of decency and of morality were entirely different from those of today. when the rupture between the middle ages and its ascetic church and the renaissance was complete human passions threw off every restraint all that had hitherto been regarded as sacred was now derided the freethinkers of italy created a literature never equalled for bold cynicism from the hermaphroditus of beccadelli to the works of berni and pietro aretino a foul stream of novel epigrams and comedies from which the serious dante would have turned his eyes in disgust overflowed the land even in the less sensual novelle, the first of which was piccolimini's eroalis and the less obscene comedies adultery and derision of marriage are the leading motives the harlots were the muses of the belles during the renaissance they boldly took their place by the side of the saints and of the church, and contended with them for fame's laurels. There is a manuscript collection of poems of the time of Alexander the Sixth, which contains a series of epigrams, beginning with a number in praise of the Holy Virgin and the saints, and then, without word or warning, are several glorifying the famous Cyprians of the day. Following a stanza on St. Pauline is an epigram on Meretricus Nishine, a well-known courtesan of Siena, with several more of the same sort. The saints of heaven and the priestesses of Venus are placed side by side, without comment, as equally admirable women. No self-respecting woman would now attend the performance of a comedy of the Renaissance, whose characters frequently represented the popes, the princes, and the noble women of the day. And their presentation, even before audiences composed entirely of men, would now be prohibited by the censor of the theatre in every land. The naturalness with which women of the South even now discuss subjects which people in the North are careful to conceal excites astonishment. But what was tolerated by the taste or morals of the Renaissance is absolutely incredible we must remember however that this obscene literature was by no means so diffused as novels are at the present time and also that southern familiarity with whatever is natural also served to protect women much was external and was so treated that it had no effect whatever upon the imagination in the midst of the vices of the society of the cities there were noble women who kept themselves pure to form an idea of the morals of the great and especially of the courts of that day we must read the history of the visconti the sforza the malatesta of rimini the balione of perugia and the borgias of rome they were not more immoral than the members of the courts of louis the fourteenth and fifteenth and of august of saxony but their murders rendered them more terrible human life was held to be of little value but criminal egotism was often qualified by greatness of mind magnanimitas so that a bloody deed prompted by avarice and ambition was often condoned egotism and the selfish use of conditions and men for the profit of the individual were never so universal as in the country of machiavelli where unfortunately they still are frequently in evidence free from the pedantic opinions of the germans and their reverence for condition rank and birth which they have inherited from the middle ages the italians on the other hand always recognized the force of personality no matter whether it was that of a bastard or not but they nevertheless were just as likely to become the slaves of the successful machiavelli maintains that the church and the priests were responsible for the moral ruin of the peninsula but were not the church and these priests themselves products of italy he should have said that characteristics which were inherent in the germanic races were foreign to the italians luther could never have appeared among them while our opinion of alexander the sixth and caesar is governed by ethical considerations this was not the case with gucciatini and less still with machiavelli they examined not the moral but the political man not his motives but his acts the terrible was not terrible when it was the deed of a strong will nor was crime disgraceful when it excited astonishment as a work of art the terrible way in which ferdinand of naples handled the conspiracy of the nobles of his kingdom made him in the eyes of italy not horrible but great and machiavelli speaks of the trick with which caesar borgia outwitted his treacherous condottieri at Sinigaglia as a master stroke while the bishop paolo giovo called it quote, the most beautiful piece of deception in that world of egotism where there was no tribunal of public opinion Man could preserve himself only by overpowering power and by outwitting cunning with craft. While the French regarded and still regard ridiculous as the worst of epithets, the Italian dreaded none more than that of simpleton. Machiavelli, in a well known passage in his Discorsi, explains his theory with terrible frankness, and his words are the exact keynote of the ethics of his age he relates how julius the second ventured into perugia although giampaolo baglione had gathered a large number of troops there and how the latter overawed by the pope surrendered the city to him his comment is verbatim as follows quote, people of judgment who were with the pope wondered at his foolhardiness and at giampaolo's cowardice they could not understand why the latter did not to his everlasting fame crush his enemy with one blow, and enrich himself with a plunder. For the Pope was accompanied by all his cardinals with their jewels. They could not believe that he refrained on account of any goodness or any conscientious scruples, for the heart of a wicked man who committed incest with his sister, and destroyed his cousins and nephews so he might rule, could not be accessible to any feelings of respect." So they came to the conclusion that there are men who can never be honorably bad, nor yet perfectly good, who do not know how to go about committing a crime, great in itself, or possessing a certain splendor. This was the case with Giampolo. He who thought nothing of incest and the murder of his kinsmen did not know how, or rather did not dare, in spite of the propitious moment, to perform a deed which would have caused everyone to admire his courage, and would have won for him an immortal name for he would have first shown the priests how small men are in reality, who live and rule as they do, and he would have been the first to accomplish a deed whose greatness would have dazzled everyone, and would have removed every danger which might have arisen from it. Is it any wonder that in view of such a prostitution of morals to the conception of success, fame, and magnificence, as Machiavelli here and in Il Principe advocates, men like the Borgias found the widest field for their bold crimes, they well knew that the greatness of a crime concealed the shame of it the celebrated poet strozzi in ferrara placed caesar borgia after his fall among the heroes of olympus and the famous bembo one of the first men of the age endeavours to console lucretia borgia on the death of the miserable little alexander the sixth whom he at the same time calls her great father no upright man conscious of his own worth would now enter the service of a prince stained by such crimes as were the borgias if it were possible for such a one now to exist which is wholly unlikely but then the best and the most upright of men sought without any scruples whatever the presents and favors of the borgias pintoricchio and perugino painted for alexander the sixth and the most wonderful genius of the century leonardo da vinci did not hesitate to enter the service of caesar borgia as his engineer to erect fortresses for him in the same romagna which he had appropriated by such devilish means the men of the renaissance were in a high degree energetic and creative they shaped the world with a revolutionary energy and a feverish activity in comparison with which the modern processes of civilization almost vanish their instincts were rougher and more powerful and their nerves stronger than those of the present race it will always appear strange that the tenderest blossoms of art the most ideal creations of the painter put forth in the midst of a society whose moral perversity and inward brutality are to us moderns altogether loathsome if we could take a man such as our civilization now produces and transfer him into the renaissance the daily brutality which made no impression whatever on the men of that age would shatter his nervous system and probably upset his reason lucretia borgia lived in rome surrounded by these passions and she was neither better nor worse than the women of her time she was thoughtless and was filled with the joy of living we do not know that she ever went through any moral struggles or whether she ever found herself in conscious conflict with the actualities of her life and of her environment her father maintained an elaborate household for her and she was in daily intercourse with her brother's courts she was their companion and the ornament of their banquets she was entrusted with the secret of all the vatican intrigues which had any connection with the future of the borgias and all her vital interests were soon to be concentrated there never even in the later years of her life does she appear as a woman of unusual genius she had none of the characteristics of the viragos caterina sforza and ginevra Bentivoglio, nor did she possess the deceitful soul of an Isotta da rimini or the spiritual genius of isabella gonzaga if she had not been the daughter of alexander the sixth and the sister of caesar borgia she would have been unnoticed by the historians of her age or at most would have been mentioned only as one of the many charming women who constituted the society of rome in the hands of her father and her brother however she became the tool and also the victim of their political machinations against which she had not the strength to make any resistance. End of section 11.